It's an important part of being human, I think, having parts of yourself that you squirrel away. That was Evie Wilde from an interview coming up very shortly in our programme. This is Story Etc. I'm Tom Crowley. There's a saying that goes, if you want to make a piece of information unimportant, release it. If you want that information to become a valuable commodity, try to hide it. We have far fewer secrets these days. We've got cameras in our pockets at all times, and all of our internet searches are archived in international databases, but still some of the most compelling stories we create are solely preoccupied with people's attempts to bury or dig up dangerous secrets. Perhaps as the fight to suppress information becomes more bitter, and as more of our lives are observed and recorded, the more we worry about having our own secrets aired, and the more tantalising these stories become. This month's episode is all about the forbidden information that's kept in our stories, within the pages of our books, and in our history. And make sure to listen all the way to the end for details of how you can come and see Story Etc. live in London later this month. I'm here with Jenny Redmond. Hello. And Eleanor Rushton. Hello. So what made us want to tackle secrets for this episode? I think we were all really looking forward to this episode, actually. The previous two that we've done have been quite um, fact-based and kind of discovery-based. And I think there was an element of finding something new, find, sort of unco- uncovering something that we hadn't seen before, and a kind of uh, romantic notion of looking at secrets within fiction. Yeah, it's very broad as well, which means there's a lot of different angles to come mm. at it from. And also, stories about secrets tend to be quite exciting yeah, and tantalising, so it's really fun to look for those things do. in particular. Yeah. yeah, I was really interested as well in the idea of how, not only how we find secrets that exist, but why things become secret in the first place. Mm-hmm. So the things that become worthy or maybe in some cases like unworthy and so are covered up or um, people seek to hide them. I was interested in that. British-Australian novelist Evie Wilde has won numerous awards for her two novels, After the Fire, A Still Small Voice and All the Birds Singing. Both novels use secrets to their full effect, whether that's between characters or information kept from us as readers. The New York Times book review commented that her concealment is artful. Jenny Redmond spoke to her about how to structure a story that's all about the things you're not supposed to find out. I'm Evie Wilde. Uh, I'm the author of three books, After the Fire, A Still Small Voice, All the Birds Singing, and a graphic memoir, Everything is Teeth. Um, And I help run a small bookshop in Peckham called Review. And that's it. Both of the novels of yours that I've read have a, a very heavy sense of things that are unsaid. Mm-hmm. Either the characters are keeping things from other characters or you as an author are keeping things from us as readers. In the narrative structure of what you're putting together, how do you keep the story moving forward when you're not telling us everything? Um, I think the minute you tell everything, that's kind of the full stop, isn't it? That's, I think, I don't know, life is a bunch of secrets Um, I think we get so used to being told everything because we're used to television and and film so everything kind of tends to get wrapped up and explained and all the secrets exposed and you know there's this this culture of sort of you know EastEnder style you know the truth will out and often it doesn't um, in real life often secrets are secrets that are maintained till death and then there's no way of getting at them. Um, 
And I find that much more compelling than what the secret is, really. You know, the fact that somebody has something that they're keeping, it doesn't really matter what it is. You know, the um, for the most part, the things that we think are the most horrendous things about ourselves are not normally that bad in the great scheme of things, um, are normally forgivable, are normally things that are more embarrassing than anything else. You know, I know that... I know that my sort of biggest family secrets are always just like, it's just too hideously embarrassing to, to let them out. So, you know, it's it's a bit like, um, it's a bit like the secret of who a person is. Um, you never really get to the end of it. You never understand fully who a person is. And in the same way, you know, what good does it do you to to know another person's secret. I don't know. Once you knew that there was going to be something, like with um, All the Birds Singing, for example, once you knew that there was going to be something that Jake was concealing, mm. how did it inform how you plotted out? Well, I don't I don't plot out at all. So I, I'm much more of a messy writer than that. I, I kind of write in layers. So the first layer is just trying to work out who she is and why she's there and what what's going on and then the next layer will be something else you know there's a scar on her back and how did that get there I think that was the most that was sort of the most obvious kind of like right she's got a physical scar and we'll hold back how she got that for a while um not that it's a secret necessarily but it's just something unrevealed um so, I mean, there was um, there was definitely an intention with all the birds singing to make it tense and make it uh, a sort of page turner kind of thing. But I don't know. I mean, it's it's got a funny structure. It, it partly runs backwards, partly runs forwards, and so that really built the tension on its own. Um, you know, even if it had been quite a simple story of not much happening that would still build tension because you're just trying to work out what on earth is going on (laughs) um so I guess I mean I guess secrets inform every part of writing for me you don't you don't tend to sit down and think right now she's got a secret and how does that what are the ramifications you're much more lost in it than that it's much more sort of grotty and messy and you're struggling to find strands that you can pull together and make links and all of the work that goes into making it seem as if the the idea was there all along um that's all the work of writing it's it's to make it look simple um that this is just a story and i'm just the mouthpiece and telling it but in reality um, the different directions it went in. Um, this is probably my secret. <laughs> what, I, um, what a mess I was writing it. Um, the different directions it it goes in, then you have to abandon and rewrite. And the simplest things, you know, occur to you in the middle of a walk or something, and you kind of go, oh, yeah, it's completely obvious that she's going down this path. I think one of the things I've learned one of the things that writing that book taught me was to trust the reader a lot more. I mean, I don't, 
I'm not someone who I don't write for an audience and I don't write with the reader in my mind largely but I do think there's something as a reader myself I, I like it when when writers I don't know I hate the term give give you work to do but like they don't assume that you need everything spelling out for you in the same way that in a film you can flip to a scene 20 years later and you don't need to go and within that 20 years she you know she became a bookkeeper and had a nice solid job you know you don't need to look at the bits that don't directly interest you um you can assume that the reader will go well she got there somehow you know She's done, she's got this far. She can probably work out getting on an aeroplane to England and buying a small place. The bit that really interests me is always the stuff around the actual event. You know, it's the the action part of the event, whatever it is, whether it's how she got her scar or uh, why, in the first book, I guess, why Frank's girlfriend left him or, you know, any of that stuff. It's... It's the quiet bits. Um, it's the quietness where you have to work on yourself in the ripples of the event that are much more interesting. And um, and so really, I just I I think I probably naturally draw it out um, in a sort of agonising, horrendous way because though that's what I'm interested in. I'm not, you know my experience of trauma is that when the traumatic thing is happening you kind of exit your body anyway you're just like I'm going to deal with this later and you kind of put yourself in the corner of the room um, and then it's you know like with PTSD and stuff like that it it affects you in a very physical um, a very physical way as well as as well as just the rethinking about it, you know, the, the echoes that it has throughout your life. Um, it, it kind of replays again and again. So I kind of feel like there's so many, there's so, many, there's so much of your life that is still that traumatic event happening, you know. Um, and it might not be, the worst bit might not be the actual thing itself, but the ramifications of it. Uh, the person it makes you, or the or the way that you feel that you've been changed by something outside of your control, um, and I used to get this when I was um, behind the till in the bookshop that someone would say, "Can you advise me about a, a book which is a happy book where nice things happen? I don't want any violence or illness or death." Or and you're just like, "Is there?" And I genuinely, it's hard. It's I mean, there are funny books, but. Funny books are often riffing on deep tragedy, you know, yeah. like that, and that's why they're funny. And and I just would all, it would stump me, you know, come in and say I need a blue book. I don't know what it's called or who it's by. I can do that, but a happy book. I, I don't know what a happy book is. In the same way, I don't know what a happy life is. It's it's like no dark and shade, just no no light and shade, just just the light. Um, it's a it's an important part of being human I think having parts of yourself that you squirrel away and um, and even your closest friends or family have got no idea about them which makes me sound much more mysterious than I am I just think that is part of humanity
A cast of characters desperately trying to keep their secrets makes for thrilling fiction, no doubt. But can the secrets kept in the bound copies themselves be just as exciting? Daryl Green is the college librarian for Magdalen College in Oxford and specialises in late medieval manuscripts and early printed books. Jenny Redmond was lucky enough to get a tour of his library and a brief glimpse at the gems hidden within. So, I mean, I've only been here since October, uh, but I've been working in the rare books field for uh, over ten years now, I guess. Um, and one of the books that I've always wanted to have in a collection that I work in, but I've never had. Uh, is here in college, and so when I came here and kind of did a quick search on the catalog to see, you know, do they have a Caxton? Do they have this? Do they have that? Uh, this book came up. Um, this is the 1540 edition of Peter Apian's Astronomical Calculator. And what's crazy about this book, aside from it being gorgeous, um, is that Apian? So Apian was a geographer and astronomer uh, in Ingolstadt. Um, and he wanted to put together a work that would act as a kind of compendium of all astronomical knowledge to date, but also serve as a way for quick calculation for people that are doing astronomical observations. Uh, so working with uh, the printer uh, and using a bit of technology that had been kind of experimented with, they came up with this Volvel method, a Volvel being movable bits of paper, usually circular, um, that could be used for calculations or just for illustration or whatever. Um, and what they were able to put together is a, basically a series of commentary and tables. So every page looks like this that brings together calculations into what is essentially a 16th century computer form. So, for example, uh, we've got the uh, motion of Saturn. So if you wanted to find Saturn in the night sky, um, and this is pre-Galileo, so this is pre-telescope as well. So Saturn was the farthest away thing you could see. Um, you could pull out Peter Apian's book, turn the tables to uh, uh, put yourself in what day and what month you're in, then turn the next set of tables to mark where at um, you're observing from, so geographically where you're observing from, uh, and then spin the second axis uh, and with a bit of calculation, you should be able to roughly predict exactly where you would expect to see Saturn at any given time in any given place. Um, so as a kind of feat of printing, uh, just as a feat of kind of concept and book design, it's astounding. Um, as a feat of printing, it's extremely well printed, it's huge as well. Um, but all of the woodcuts are hand-colored, the volvels are all hand-stitched, that thread is a 16th century thread that connects everything together. Um, and so these really were kind of bespoke things. What's even cooler about this book is, um, or this copy of this book, is that, um, well, I'll show you one more thing first before I talk about that. Um, so this book is really, as I said, the kind of apex of printing of its time. Hugely complica complicated, hugely beautiful. Uh, in some cases, I mean, that's kind of an abstract work of art on its own. Um, but there's one little printing error that they made. So a colophon, which is where you would find the printing information or the modern book, so who printed it, when it was printed, and where. Um, they set it backwards. Uh, and that was probably the job of an apprentice printer, who probably didn't make it past his apprenticeship, because he ruined the whole last gathering of the book, basically, by printing the colophon backwards. In the 20th century, and certainly pre-1950s, kind of 1960s, 
uh, it was quite common to extract fragments out of books. Move this out of the way. In college, um, we have several big binders or guard books or scrapbooks, really. Really are scrapbooks that are full of fragments of medieval manuscripts that have been pulled out of out of books, so out of bindings, so either as um, end papers, kind of fly leaves, or in some cases as you know little little bits and pieces of material to protect spines. Uh, lots of it with musical annotation, uh, or quite fine decoration in some cases. These are witnesses to medieval books that no longer exist, right? So, you know, in, in alone in our college, in our collection, we've got seven volumes full of these medieval ma uh, manuscript fragments, which number in the few hundreds. Um, that's a few hundred medieval books that we actually have a witness to. They're, they're lost in whole, but we actually know that they existed at some point. Cats? Yes, please. <laughs> So this book, uh, this uh, what I'm going to tell you about this book, we only came across this two months ago, two and a half months ago, something like that, um, although this book has been in our collection since the 1480s. Uh, and so this is um, one of the first books printed by the first printer in Oxford, a guy from the Low Countries called Theodore Rood. Um, he had a business here on the high street in Oxford, both printing new books as well as selling second-hand books. Nothing super special about this book. It exists in many copies, um, but it's a nice example of what you would see in Oxford in the 1480s uh, on a bookshelf. As I looked at it a bit further, as I was getting ready for the class, um, it was pretty clear that it was bound with a second work. And this is a very common thing to have more than one book bound uh, bound together to conserve binding space, etc., etc. Um, so here's where the, the first book finishes, and you can see all the, the doodles. That's what he was clearly not paying attention to the work. Um, and where the second book begins. The second book predates the Oxford printing. So Oxford printing is 1480s. Uh, the, the second book is a Parisian uh, imprint from the 1470s. As I was turning the pages to check in condition and things like that, uh, turned past the page that looked quite dirty, uh, and had a slightly closer look. And we've got that dirt that I saw is actually um, dirty paw prints running across one of the pages. Um, so this book is printed in 1475 in Paris. Uh, and if you look close enough, you'll see that the dirt is actually underneath the printing. So you have a cat with dirty feet running across printed paper, ruining the paper. Um, but the printer decided to still use that sheet of paper. There's more story behind this. So it was quite common for printers and uh, paper makers to keep cats. It would keep rodents away, um, mutual, you know, mutual agreement, basically. Um, and the printing of books, especially in the 15th and 16th and 17th century, paper was about 70% of the cost of making a book. And so a shrewd printer wouldn't just throw away a piece of paper if it had a minor defect. Um, and a clearly a cat's muddy paw prints um, was considered a minor defect. But what that means is we've got a time capsule here that is preserved, you know, this moment in, you know, the printer shop, you know, in the afternoon where he's working away and his cat has just run through a mud puddle and then jumped up on his paper stocking, imagine cursing at his cat and running off and him just deciding to use a piece of paper instead. So 500 years of cats walking across your book or your computer, right? Never Every change. time. Don't change. Um, so even in this library, kind of looking around, you, you can see the little orange flags that are around. 
um, that denotes a book that isn't cataloged. Um, and there's probably 20, 25% of the collection here that hasn't been cataloged. And that's actually pretty good. Uh, where I was at in St. Andrews uh, was a collection of about 200,000 early printed books. And over 50% of that was uncatalogued, so 100,000 books. And you know, what is in there, you have no idea, because nobody's really spent the time to actually figure out what's going on in there. But the fact that it remains that there's lots of books that haven't been recorded, haven't been catalogued, and so that the cat book, for example, I mean, that book has been, been catalogued um, and probably looked at by, by several people. But the, the cat paw prints, you know, somebody, you know, as I said, as I was turning through that book, it just looked like a dirt smudge on the page. So it was just the fact that, we, you know, I had it on the shelf and was spending a few minutes with it. And I was probably the first person to do that in several hundred years. I think what's, what's going to be interesting about uh, books that are being produced now in 200 years time, let's say, looking back on things, is... Um, is looking at the, the shift in kind of size and format, the kind of this havering between uh, digital and not digital, um, and also the emphasis that has really gone into the, the companies that produce kind of um, very high-quality books as well, uh, or artist books. You know, the kind of the resurgence of book artistry in the past 20 years um, has really been in response to the book market as well. So making something that is, uh, you know, limited in edition or has added uh, added elements to it that make it more attractive to a buyer, um, you know, those things are uh, a lot of what, like, for example, I mean, the, the AP and the astronomical calculator that I showed you, that was probably only produced in an edition of 75 to 100, um, but it survives in quite a high number because it was such a wonderful, eye, you know, captivating, captivating book. One could say that an artist book from the 21st century would do the same thing. I would think, although we were producing books at a much higher rate, or we have been for a long time producing books at a much higher rate, uh, and on much different quality of paper as well, uh, that you still will see a huge decrease in the survival of books over time. And a lot of that is not necessarily due to kind of casual intervention or loss, but more so because libraries, um, because of space and cost and things, are now not keeping every copy of every book that comes out. Um, so, for example, here in the UK, there's a, a program called the Research Reserve, where institutions have agreed that they will keep the one golden copy of whatever scientific periodical or whatever journal. Uh, but that means that all the other institutional libraries are going to chuck out their 18th and 19th century journals that are just taking up too much space. So it means that we're in that one you know, fell swoop, we're automatically creating uh, a collection that is now going to be extremely rare and needed to be looked after. Two very interesting, very different segments there. Jenny, what did you find from your interviews? Uh, I was really interested to talk to Evie about almost sort of looking behind the camera of, of creating fiction and how they actually do that when the, the purpose of a secret is that you're not giving us information that we need. So that in itself was was tangential as well. I was able to talk to her about um, the author keeping us in the dark, but as as well as the sort of character-based stuff. Um, but then I was able to indulge my book fetishism uh, and go and speak to um, a rare books librarian and spend some time in the old library in Magdalen College because I actually thought the physical secrets that books can hold was was just different to looking at something that was going to be plot-based or character-based. Actually, the stories that books themselves can make and tell over hundreds and hundreds of years uh, and the secrets that we can uncover from them. 
I have a story like that. Go on. I got a copy, a used copy of Amadeus by Peter Schaffer, and in the front of it there were two dedications on the reversed page. The first one was from uh, a woman to a man, saying, um, celebrating a wonderful night. Over the page, that wasn't even crossed out, on the second page it was re-gifted from the man named in the first note to another man, saying, oh dear so-and-so, let's do some more Mozart sometime. Hey up. And yeah, and I just thought, what's the story? It's amazing. Is let's do some more Mozart sometime a euphemism that I'm not aware of? I can only imagine. <laughs> One from the 80s. <laughs> what was your favourite rare books curio you managed to dig up? Cat Paw Prints. Cat Paw Prints. Were, were my favourite. And I, uh, when Daryl first told me about them, I was like, okay, yeah, sure. Cat Paw Prints. That's kind of, does exactly what it said on the tin. Uh, and... As a um, cat owner, uh, well, ex-cat owner, I'm very... Our condolences <laughs> to the listeners. This is a recent development. You can tweet us your condolences <laughs> at Story Etc. Pod for Jenny's cat. What was your cat's name? Minty. Minty. Rest in Didn't peace. Didn't choose the name. Rest in power, Minty. You know, it's a very familiar setting, having a cat walk across your book or just the being around on your stuff and all that kind of stuff. I was like, yeah, okay. So in the 1700s, there was somebody whose cat walked across their book. Fine. However, um, what Daryl told me was that actually the cat paw prints existed before the manuscript was printed on. Um, so it was actually the cat walked across the the um, book printer's paper, and because paper was so expensive, they couldn't afford to throw that bit away, and they just carried on printing on it. And I, that <laughs> makes it just so much cooler. That's amazing. And we went, ah, cat's gone on it again. Well, well, off we go. <laughs> Better print a book on it. Bloody cat. Yeah. This show is all about creating fiction, and we ourselves are most certainly in the business of the distribution of new work as far and as wide as we can. But for so many writers, a huge part of the creative process happens in secret, especially when you're not that sure of your work, either because you're shy, you're not sure if it's ready, or because you're nine years old. Stuart Pringle is currently the associate dramaturg of the Bush Theatre in London. He's written stories all his life, and recently came across an old diary of his which, as a child, he turned into a rather grisly project. I talked to him about his page-a-day horrors, his efforts in archiving his own juvenilia, and showing work. Hi, I'm Stuart Pringle. Um, I am uh, uh, various things to do with theatre in London. Um, I'm the associate dramaturg at the Bush Theatre in Shepherd's Bush. Um, I'm also occasional critic for places including The Stage and New Scientist. And uh, when I can find the time, I write some plays. What the Birds Sing As he worked on his presentation, Samuel Beauchamp noticed how much the birds were singing that day. They all seemed to be waiting for something, as if they were expecting someone. They were all chirping excitedly and flying from branch to branch. Then, that some person seemed to arrive. It was a crow, and all the birds fell silent when he arrived. The crow fell from the tree and landed on his typewriter. Ow! What he thought that you heard him talk. I said hello. It did speak. It really did. Did you speak? said Samuel. Yes, I did, said the crow. And you better get ready for the end of the world, because it's coming. Tomorrow morning the world will end. What? said Samuel. How? The sun shall go nova and the earth shall be destroyed. Creepy little bird, said Samuel, as he raised a rock and crushed the crow. The next day... At exactly nine o'clock, the sun did go nova. The earth was destroyed. And that's why you should always listen to what the birds sing. And that was written 
on the 28th of January 1995, when I was nine years old. That story um, seems to have come more or less from, a, uh, from, first of all, a kind of preoccupation with premonitions of doom, which I had as a child, um, and secondly, from a dream that my mum had when I was very small, um, which she reported to us. My mum suffers terribly from nightmares and always has, and they, they sort of range in, in sort of realism from, uh, from sort of normal, my kids have gone missing, I'm going to die, to... Uh, to a sort of recurring nightmare she had about Cybermen taking over centre parks uh, and being sort of trapped by them in this kind of dystopian holiday camp nightmare, um, which actually sounds, to be honest, like something the Cybermen might have done in the, in the 80s. But anyway, this dream in particular was a dream in which she thought she had cancer and she could feel this lump in her stomach and she was sort of terrified and she went to the doctors and they said, oh, well, we'll have to x-ray you. And they x-rayed her and then they wouldn't tell her what they'd found in her stomach. Um, and so they said, well, we're going to operate and remove it. And um, they went to operate, and when they did, it wasn't a tumour, it was this crow, uh, which was sort of bent inside her stomach. And she said she could remember feeling the sort of claws of it digging into her, and the kind of feathers and the weird sort of sinewy crow stuck in her abdomen. Um, and, and that story always appealed to me. I don't seem to have captured any of the kind of brilliant body horror of that, <laughs> sort of Cronenbergian brilliance of that dream in this. Uh, there's just a sort of crow pottering around in it. But um, I'm pretty sure that's that's why I was I had a crow on my mind and why it gets crushed by Samuel Bouchon. So I was given a diary for Christmas in 1994, uh, which was a page-a-day diary, which I sort of endeavoured over the next six months or so to fill with horror stories, short ghost stories. And I wrote one a day in the morning before school. The idea initially was to write one story per page, so one short story per page. And I stuck to that for a few weeks and then kind of got bored and started writing multi-part stories. And then by the end of the book, I'm writing these sort of 16-part stories which are with dreadful plots which spiral on forever. And if I just stuck to one page a day, I'd have written a much better collection of children's ghost stories. But yeah, I came across that book on a visit home uh, at some point last year in 2016. I sort of started typing them up without any kind of corrections in terms of spelling or grammar, so the spelling is dreadful and the grammar is dreadful. And then adding, I guess, something like footnotes to them, which are kind of, to the best of my abilities, a recollection of why they were written. So I think I received this book, this book which all of these stories were written in, for Christmas in sort of Christmas 1994, so just before the dawn of 1995. Um, my dad's a mechanic and uh, he is generally given quite a lot of sort of random tap from suppliers and people who uh, who he buys a lot of mechanical parts from and one year he was given a sort of plush red page per day diary with a sort of gold gold leaf on the on the on the pages and um and a little tag to keep your place and gave it to me as a as a sort of bonus christmas present i really liked it and decided that as i would in an attempt to create my own sort of short story collection i would write a new horror story in it every day so i used to get up before school um i used to always get up about 6 a.m uh, as a child for reasons which feel completely alien to me now um and 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 write a full story uh generally each day on one page of this diary and the diary is quite small it's sort of an a i don't know what you call it a5 size so it's not particularly large so to cram a whole horror story in needed quite a lot of compression um but i sort of i stuck at it for quite a while and and by the end of it I had sort of almost 150 of these things so I'm massively envious of my work ethic as a child uh, and the ability to get up every morning to write a story. And I certainly don't get up every morning to write uh, something of a play. I think my work ethic's very poor now in that kind of thing. It's partly being a bit busy and it's partly just that I'm incredibly lazy when it comes to writing. I try to write something every week, though that doesn't even always come off. 
But I think what I have sort of retained from from the time when I was writing these stories, which might not be a very good thing, but it's definitely still there, is kind of a love of twists and surprises. And so many of these stories are, are packed full of sort of crap twists. Um, and so much of what I love in the theatre is being taken by surprise. People talk about sort of twist endings being like, oh, it's like The Twilight Zone. Well, I, was, I didn't have any copies of The Twilight Zone as a kid, but what I did have was a book which had all of the plot synopses of The Twilight Zone in. So I actually got most of my twists, not from watching The Twilight Zone and appreciating the artfulness of it and the sort of intelligent construction of character and the brilliant reflections on social class, but literally just from reading what happened at the end that was really surprising. So like payoff with no build-up. I was definitely my forte and my kind of taste as a kid. So that, that, that became a, a sort of short story collection, which I, as a child, fully intended to, uh, to publish and then sell, or possibly actually just sell that copy I'd written on the back, a price tag of about £400, because I think I figured I'd put quite a lot of work into it. <laughs> and if I was only going to sell one, then I'd better get my money uh, out of it. But yeah, uh, that was a, a sort of ongoing project. And really the only writing from my childhood that I still have, I suppose. I wrote a lot of poems as well, but I got embarrassed by them and burnt them when I was sort of about 14, which I now massively regret. I think I was angry that I take myself so seriously, maybe. Um, but I definitely was never kind of shy about writing and I kind of continued to, to, to sort of potter on writing a lot of short film stuff or a lot of film stuff, um, a lot of scripts, but not ever really play scripts. I didn't really think about theatre as being something you could write because I didn't know where you'd ever put it on. Whereas a film, you could sort of write it and then you could get your camcorder or whatever or get your dad's camcorder as I did and, and, and sort of film it with your mates. Um, but yeah, I kept writing stories and uh, scripts and all sorts um, just didn't keep very many of them. I always wanted to be doing something like that. I didn't have any idea as grand as wanting to be a writer or anything, but I definitely wanted to be writing. Um, I think what I wanted to be was a sort of horror movie creator of some sort. Um, maybe I, mean, I think I probably wanted to do the makeup really because I wanted to really get involved with the kind of the gore and the and the uh, the special effects and everything like that. So that was that was my creative goal. But I think I thought the best way to doing to reaching that with my limited resources was just sort of keep writing strange horror stories. I think I feel quite similarly in some ways about showing work uh, now as I did then, which was sort of that I was never quite sure in what form I wanted people to kind of receive the stuff I was doing. Like I was always very, all of the books that, I've, that remain or anything that I've got from when I was writing always have things like price tags, which I'd self-drawn on them and things like that. So I was definitely thinking about marketing them to an audience. I used to uh, record a radio show um, called Pringle and Oxford Radio with my then best friend, Simon Doxford, in which we would talk uh, as sort of American style radio DJs uh, doing our own kind of budget bedroom Wayne's World type thing, I suppose, like making up stories and reviewing films that we'd seen. And, and those tapes I always like copied a couple of in case I was going to sell them, but never actually tried to sell them to anyone. So I suppose it's kind of similar to the fact that I mainly spend a lot of time at the moment writing plays and not really showing them to anyone. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's a difficult thing. It's difficult um, to, to kind of put your work out there particularly when you're very small. I suppose I think it's very important that um, what, at whatever stage you decide to show your work, whether that's to your friends or whether that's to your agent or whether that's to a theatre or whether that's to whoever, whenever you decide to, to, to show it, the important thing is that you keep it uh, and that you retain everything that you write. And I think the, the, the advice I always give to playwrights, particularly very new playwrights um, who are sort of working through ideas or working through various drafts of things, is that whatever they do, they just mustn't throw a single thing away. Not a paragraph or a sentence or a joke, like everything. Just oh, It's so easy now. Open a Word document, paste it in, call it notes, 
for such and such or whatever. I mean, it doesn't matter, but it's, it's about, um, it's about making sure that you have a kind of, uh, a trace back through every different thought you had about a piece because they're the only way that you, uh, they're the only way that you get to use all of those brilliant things which fell out of a play or a story or whatever for one reason or another. And the, the surprising places that, that forgotten or kind of orphan bits of text can end up in is kind of a constant delight. And I think there are so many things that I've written, I feel, that have grown out of something which I wrote and then threw away. But luckily, I didn't throw it entirely away. And I think that that kind of instinct to, to, to value everything that you write, even if you don't value it at the time to sort of value the time you spent writing it and consider its potential future is really really important if you'd like to read the rest of the stories or the ones that have been read here um then the tumblr is at allstorieswithin.tumblr.com we now present our production of one of stuart's three-part epics family of the damned presented unedited as it was originally written in his all stories within our true collection 400 pounds per copy supplies are extremely limited the town of Oakley is weird in two ways. One, over 12 bodies have gone missing from graves in the last year. That is pretty strange, but not considering the second thing. That second thing is the story I am about to relate. A story that nobody will ever forget. It took place two months ago in a small house just outside the town. It all began in a pub one night. I was sitting at the bar with my friend. We were chatting about work. My friend was called Harry, and as far as I knew, lived on his own in a the house I referred to at the beginning. He had often said that he wanted a family. The next week, Harry said he wanted to go home early. I agreed, and he went quickly in the direction of the cemetery. The next week, I asked him what he'd been doing. He would not answer me. That day, he went away soon, and once again headed for the cemetery. The next morning, the paper reported that two bodies had been stolen from the cemetery. By that afternoon, the whole town of Oakley was in an uproar. This was the first case of grave robbing for six weeks. The next night, there was another three graves were robbed. I began to suspect my friend Harry of it, and so the next Friday, I confronted him about it. He said nothing, just stomped off, looking grim. Many thought that the graves were being robbed by the local hospital, but it was proved not guilty of the crime. Then the murders began. They were vicious and brutal, and in every case, it seemed that the corpse had been eaten alive. But on one door of a victim, there was a fingerprint in blood. There was an inquiry, and for weeks, nobody was found. But then the prints were found to match a woman called Laura Kedling. They searched all of the town's records to see where she lived. They found a photo of her, but then found that she had been dead for 60 years. Naturally, the police investigation ended with haste. The murders continued on a nearly monthly basis, 
until one Friday when I went to the pub to meet Harry. He came to me and told me that I must come to his house tonight at midnight. Then he left. I felt nervous as I approached his house. I could not think why. But when I got to the door, it was locked. But the cellar door was wide open. I went in to try and find him. As I went in, the door slammed behind me. I was left in the dark. There was a scuffle, and I heard a clump. I took out my torch and switched it on. All around the room, people were standing. But they were horrible. They had empty eye sockets and holes made by maggots all over their faces. In the middle of them was Harry. Meet my family. At that time, I fainted. I was found a hundred miles away at the side of the road. I got out of hospital five weeks later. Harry was gone. His house was empty. He definitely had the family of the damned. Family of the Damned was written by Stuart Pringle, age 9, from the 12th to the 14th of February 1995. It was performed by Ben Sheck, directed by Tom Crowley, and recorded by Benjamin Partridge at the Tristan Bates Theatre. Eleanor. Yes. When do you like to show work, if ever? I, well, I've come to realise that you've just got to push it out of your own bedroom or computer or whatever. I used to be incredibly um, worried about showing it unless it was completely finished and, and everything. But I think as I've got older, I've become a bit more lasé about, let's see what people think, which I think is better. I think it's better. It makes sense. I, I'm fairly brazen about it. I do find that one thing is when a project isn't moving as fast as I'd like it to. I don't really tend, unless I'm being commissioned for something, I don't tend to show stuff till there's a full draft, you know, unless it's like, that's part of the stipulation, send us act one when act one's done, we'll give you notes, anything like that. That's fine. But if there's something of my own volition that I'm under no obligation to show, I won't show it till it's done. What I will do is keep talking to people about how annoyed I am that I'm not writing on it more. I think talking about what you're doing, well, it's interesting. I think sometimes kind of keeping a, a sort of um, a space around what you're doing can be really useful. And then, you know, being introspective about it. But sometimes I think just talking to people about the idea and just seeing what they might say on how they interpret just the loose um, threads of what you're giving of what you're giving them can be really stimulating, actually. Do you find that talking to other people about your work encourages you to work on it more in a kind of telling people that you've got a gym membership? Like, they're going to know when you don't go to the gym. That's if you talk to people about writing, they're going to say, well, have you finished it yet? Where are you up to? What's happening? Yes. I would say no. Really? Because I find that it's quite, there's, it's like the, um, the dopamine of, um, being creative is expended when you say, well, I'm just working on this thing right now. But then that doesn't make you actually put up and finish a thing. I find anyway. So one thing I sometimes do is if there's something I want to get done and I've got no excuse not to finish it is ban myself from talking about. Until it's done. Yeah. Until it's finished, I can't talk about any decisions I've made or any problems I'm having with the script or anything I'm excited about. About it, I have to sort of limit the amount I'm allowed to talk because that that kind of spews all of your creative energy into 
essentially boasting that you're working on something mm. without actually doing it. I think I need to boast. I think I need to pin myself down to other real human beings and be like, oh yes, this is this is happening. It is really happening and it will happen because then I have to produce it or I look like a Wally. Yeah, that's good too. Mm. Good use of the word Wally. If we're talking about big secrets, one of the biggest is the editing out of women from our history books. Quaint Ladies is a team of writers who seek to expose previously suppressed stories of women's experiences through dramatic adaptations. Eleanor Rushton sat down with Sarah and Maureen of Quaint Ladies to speak about their practice and research. We'd like to offer a warning that the following interview and Quaint Ladies writing contain graphic descriptions of complications arising during childbirth in the early modern period, which some people might find upsetting. First, we present an extract from their play in development, Lady Percy. This is a speech performed by the play's chorus of Northumbrian women. Behind locked doors with dark drapes drawn, my love, who has only one day to die, already ends a thousand lives, by Welshmen's spear detained by the Scots, mounts his horse and down is shot. What does he plot? Who has his ear? I have but silence, dreams and fear. I am denied, I must not hear. My countries bleed but noiselessly. Their rifts are still unknown to me. My brother's silence, so's my king. Is battle coming? Who must win? I've lived on borders all my life. One same good soil paired by a knife. A wall, a name, a different king. Turns neighbours savage, land to fire. A good man traitor, love to ire. I cannot care less. Knowledge heals. I must know what my homeland feels. I'm Sarah Anson. And I'm Maureen O'Hagan. We are writers, we make theatre, film and television, and together we write as quaint ladies. Quaint the ladies. Working on usually historical stories with a female focus. So I suppose we're quite interested in women's secret stories. Areas of history where stories have been kind of silenced or cut out, or they're not features of mainstream historical writing now. We've written a play um, called Lady Percy, which is sort of a retelling of Shakespeare's Henry IV plays, um, in which Lady Percy is a character, but she has these two amazing scenes, but she doesn't really appear very much outside of those scenes. So we took her and we wanted to tell her story using the same or similar characters, um, but we wanted to tell, uh, I suppose, the, the, the secret story of, of the women, but also the secret story of um, the, the Northerners, the Scots, the um, Welsh... Um, and the people whose stories aren't often heard, um, or if they are heard in Shakespeare's uh, their stories, that they're not that they're not necessarily given very much voice. So we wanted to give them a voice, I suppose. So in terms of writing, sort of these secret histories or extracting these kind of secret histories, from a purely research point of view, how did you go about it? I think we researched Lady Percy. It, it took us like almost a year and a half, at least, mm. to do the research. Um, we um, we obviously started with, with books, but we got in touch with some academics. Um, but what we found quite quickly was that it was actually really difficult to find stuff out about particularly the history of, of women, particularly kind of domestic stuff. So if we wanted to tell Lady Percy's story and think about what she might have been doing or, or what might have been happening to her, um, it was really, really difficult to find that out. So we spoke to a really cool academic called Virginia Davis at... Queen Mary University. Um, she gave us lots of um, books to read and lots of advice. Um, we also read quite a lot of historical fiction um, because we wanted to try and get a sense of the, the human side of it. So we wanted to kind of read what other people had already written or the stories that other people but had written. Because it's so, it's so hard to imagine what those 
those women's voices are like and what they actually mm. do all day, we had to kind of turn, I think, to fiction to spark mm. our imaginations. Yes. Because when it was things like... we. Um, when we'd spoken to academics, we, they were really great at pointing us to different accounts of various women of the period. So we could we could find out about what a woman like Elizabeth lived like. Um, mm. But in terms of actual information about the character we were trying to research, it, it was very limited. We went to lots of locations, talked to archivists at castles, things like that. Yeah. And really the best we could find were brief mentions that she lived in this place at that date you know um whichever henry percy was currently in charge would mm. be living at this castle and part of his family would be his steward his children and the wife yeah so we went to walk with castle which is where we think lady percy probably would have been based most of the time um and it's quite an amazing castle because it's still it's kind of partly in ruins but there are also there's there's floors so you you can go inside and walk around and and sort of see where the bedroom might have been um, and I think a, good, a big part of research was like was was going there and looking out the window and seeing what the view was. It did that that was quite inspiring, wasn't it? That we we wrote because quite a lot after think, that. Um, yeah, I mean we don't even know which castle she was in though. It's that hard to yeah yeah. Pin down, we, we, we had to decide on a, a place that we were going to set it. Yeah, and, we had a read mm. and came to that conclusion. But because um, we do know that she would have been very much confined to a location, so there were very few women. Mm. in a castle it was kind of a military base and you'd have the, the the main family and obviously some domestic staff but lots of male domestic staff as well um and she would have been kept quite constrained um she would have had a solar where she and her kind of ladies spent most of their day and when anything was going on she would have been looking out the window waiting and waiting for you know really long periods of time to get any news Shakespeare opens Henry the Fourth Part Two with Rumour, the voice of Rumour, the character, this idea that different stories get passed. So if you're waiting for your husband to come back from a rebellion he started against the king, you might hear many different things about what's actually happened to him. And in Shakespeare's story, the first person to hear that is the boy's father, um, Henry Percy's father, who's let him down and hasn't come to the battle. So he gets all these different accounts of what's happened to the son. He's let down mm. for a start and he gets all his grief process and he gets to, you know, have all the emotional response to this. And we thought, where's Elizabeth? You know, she's probably sitting. She knows there's a messenger. She knows the news that she's been waiting for is there. Mm. And she's sitting inside some solar, maybe trying to listen out and have her emotional response, but it, no one gives space to that. So, yeah, so being trapped in that location was an interesting starting point. It's something Lady Percy engages with very viscerally from what I've seen is um, <laughs> another kind of secret which is something less to do with perhaps not worth speaking about and more linked to things like taboo and things like mm. shame I'm talking mm. about the birth scene birth would have been a, a big element of most women's lives and um, whether you were a lady Percy or whether you were a, a, a you know a, a washerwoman or someone like that um but obviously it would have been quite different but on the same at the same time I suppose it's kind of a bit of a leveler as well between all women it's the same it's the same experience um and when it comes so, to writing a, a female history play you know we're yeah. used to hearing these stories of men being killed in battle that's their battle but the yeah. battle that women faced in childbirth the more we've read about it was Whoa, it's astonishing. Yeah, and, and so I think what's, what we're really interested in is just how much we did not know and still don't know about what happened, kind of the secrets of our own bodies, I suppose. Um, you know, even talking to my own mum about her giving birth to me, um, there was stuff, she's, she said that 
Um, things happened that she had no idea was going to happen. Nobody had prepared her for. She was terrified. Obviously, you're, you're scared in that situation anyway. But um, things happened to her body both before, during and after that she just had no idea would happen. Um, so I suppose we started thinking about that in terms of what would it have been like for Lady Percy or for someone at that time to, to have a baby. We discovered some pretty really horrible things because obviously um, babies can get stuck and um, what did we learn I think that if, if you're pushing for an hour that's too that's well, too that's, long yeah we, we we found a story about what happens basically if the baby gets stuck in a birth canal and I was asking my mum and she says you know there's there's a point you know you're opening up and after that there shouldn't it shouldn't be too long spent pushing and what happens if you if you are pushing too long is that you just become so weak and so ill and that it, you can't really let that happen for too long or a woman might just die the the way we deal with that now is probably cesarean section mm. um which has only very recently become a safe practice um it would have without doubt killed a mother until very very recently so they, they could either put a hook into the head and try and pull it out but they would also sort of drill into the head is that right and um sort of essentially remove it that way by so, removing so if the, you drill the into the brains. head of a baby yeah. you have to you sharp metal object spike its head yeah then remove, hook out the brains um, to, to make space and crush the skull so that um, you can then sort of just pull the baby out because it's got yeah. to get out somehow and somebody is going to die. Just to unpack this a little bit, so we've got this idea of birth as being almost like a need-to-know, like a need-to-know mm. attitude, which I think is still the case now, like you were saying with your mum, and the fact that either it's just forgetting because that's how our how our bodies work we forget mm. so we couldn't have another one yeah and also like wishing wishing for grandchildren but <laughs> this idea that um yeah some things it seems people only find out when it happens or unless they really really try and mm. find out i suppose out. for the continuation of the species it might be a useful secret that <laughs> yeah. yeah so kind of the bi- like the biological necessity of it being kept <laughs> we were, a secret found yeah. out a funny thing yesterday which is that uh until quite recently um you couldn't talk on television about women's illnesses. Yeah. I don't even really know what that is. No. Yeah. So so you couldn't wow. say, you know, certain swear words, which I won't say here. Mm. Um, but you couldn't also mention women's illnesses because everyone would be frightfully upset. I suppose um, midwives is quite an interesting topic in terms of secrecy because what we found out again in our research for this was that um, midwives and witches are often linked. Um um, and we've we, we had to think about why, but I suppose if you're a woman going in to help another woman give birth, then and the baby is deformed or it dies, then that could be because you've done something. And of course, also using kind of potions and spells, and they had various weird, strange methods, which you know may or may not have worked in certain ways of of helping with pain and things like that. Midwives were unusual women. They were often, you know, older, knowledgeable, perhaps yeah. widowed. Um, they were sort of less within patriarchal constraint because they they had their own kind of skill set and knowledge that was separate from men. Men wouldn't be present, so it was their own strange thing. And I suppose you know, whilst men were very detached from birth, they had they had an interest in their baby being a boy or not, but healthy, mm. all of these things, and it, they would have not had much control over it. So a midwife is already going into a situation which could be very dangerous, and there isn't very much understanding about you know why things happen to babies at birth it is very mysterious and Mm. so they're an easy target um kind of a combination of fear and ignorance will make them an easy target 
And now, another extract from Lady Percy, this time performed by an attendant at the birth scene, Mariotta. I've never seen a woman giving birth. I've seen it in a cow, a dog, a lamb. It doesn't seem so bad. They lie down, wait, and then they lick the litter clean. But in a woman, well, the head's too big. The space it has to come through is too narrow. My lady expanded like a yawn, stretching wider through the night, red and burning sore. They said that she was ready, and then we saw her baby's head, pushing hard against her body fully stretched. A saying to a garment that won't fit. She tried to force it through, she tried for hours. The mothers tried their hands to help its way. My lady writhed and wrung out all her strength. The head's too big, they told us. It's been too long, they said. The child should turn as it comes forward. He should know to turn his head. The lady grew so white, with no blood left to flush her face. All her strength betrayed her body and gathered in one place. She couldn't raise an arm or or lift her eyes up to the Lord. They had to get it out, they said. My lady's halfway dead. So they took an iron hook and pushed it through the baby's head. They tried to make it smaller, so they sucked the insides out. They handed to me what they took out. And they crushed a tiny skull. And then the baby slid out, like an eel. We're now delighted to present our radio adaptation of a short story about a secret legacy. Dateless Night by Leon Craig. It was not a significant birthday on which my mother called me into her study to discuss my inheritance. Rowan and Jamie were playing in the hall, one jumping from the stairs in pursuit and the other waiting by the drawing room door for the cue to run. When they saw me, the twins made a kind of war cry and took off, running in opposite directions so only one of them could be caught at a time. I touched translucent smears on the banister and smelt the yellow oil on my fingers. Linseed. They had been going through my things again. They were too old for this kind of game. My mother busied herself, opening and shutting drawers, pulling them out so far they threatened to fall, then shoving them back in with a thunk and a rustle. Curled up sheets of Bristol boards sprung out from nests of bank statements. I kept myself entertained by cross-referencing the lies I'd told her against the things I'd said in passing. When no discrepancies suggested themselves, I moved on to wondering what this gift might be. Some heirloom thick with the grease of my caresses? Money? The opportunity to sell my work? My prolonged childhood was becoming grotesque, and I was not much use with the actual children. I practiced the deceits of my adolescence with long expertise, but with no relish. They say the ringing sound that follows loud music is the last note of that pitch you'll ever hear again. My ears still buzzed from my early youth, but the dancing had stopped. Other girls hoped for presents from their boyfriends, not their parents, nor from other people's girlfriends. I was on the tail end of one disaster and at the beginning of another. I would not be receiving a card from either party. She had found an envelope and was tearing into it with the letter knife. 
Through the window I could see snowdrops around the pond and a furtive cat, white against white snow. Its paw prints led in a semicircle from behind the outbuilding where I liked to paint. Not one of ours. I squatted by the little stove and undid the door to give the fire some encouragement with a poker. The sound of her setting the knife softly onto the leather of the desk called me back over. She had gone to some effort. Today she was in all the splendour of her self-imposed uniform. Coral pink lips and blue cashmere and pearls. This usually signified bad news. I sat down opposite and drew the envelope towards myself. Inside, it was patterned with red and green Italianate feathers. It contained a cheque for a considerable sum. I would finally be able to go. If I lived abroad, I might not even need to work. There were so many things I hadn't seen. I folded the cheque and was about to slide it into my bra when Mother took my hand and held it down on the desk, with more force than necessary. I did not like the line of her mouth. I have something else to give you. Is it advice? No. Is it jewellery? I liked to tell myself I had an artist's appreciation for beautiful things. It was more likely that I had learnt from her the habits of mind which had been so much to her advantage. She looked more surprised than she should have done. Yes, it is. Is it the tennis bracelet? I told you you can't have that. You'll lose it. So I won't lose this, whatever it is? Her pressure on the top of my hand intensified. Her hand had the shiny feel that older women's do when they neglect their skin in youth, only to slather it with cream in middle age. Syringa. Not what I would have chosen. Look at my wrist. The silver bracelet she had always worn was so tight the skin around it had whitened and bulged out pinkly on either side. The little garnet eyes of the snake showed red in the firelight, his mouth full of the bracelet's circumference. Him? You'd have to go to a jeweller's and get him sawn off. No, I don't. That wasn't a comment about your weight, by the way. I could definitely stand to get out more. Could you let my hand go, please? I don't think you've quite understood. Look at my wrist. I looked again, for longer. I'd thought it must have been light reflecting on the metal. The snake looked like it was moving. Then his jaws opened imperceptibly wider, and with a soft click, he took in a little more tail. <clears throat> My mother groaned. Horror is not dissimilar from love, in that all time gets folded in to meet it. You either feel it still in the present or in remembering, encounter the feeling of your failure to feel it. Whatever that is, it needs to go. Now. Why the fuck are you trying to give it to me? I... I can't get him off. The minute the saw touches him, my hand goes with him. What on earth? Why is it doing this? That used to be loose on you. My mother turned slightly and with her free hand, took down the wedding picture from the shelf behind her. She tapped a lacquered nail against the glass. Look, I'm thinner here than after I had you. I had seen the photo many times and listened to a version of that complaint, but I hadn't noticed the awkward angle of her hand holding my father's. The snake was tight there, too. 
It's your turn. My legs had crossed themselves before I fully comprehended what she meant. Acid mingled with cake in my mouth. That's what the check is for, isn't it? To assuage your guilt? Hand still in position, she sat back in her chair and wrinkled the nose I shared with her. On the wall to the left of her, a row of her pastels had faded with the light. In the silence, I wondered whether the things we do to ourselves and to other people to ensure we are comfortable enough to make art often deaden our ability even to appreciate it. It's time for you to start thinking seriously about what to do with your life, about where and how you want to live. There are almost no men around here worth mentioning, and those that are have the wrong idea about you. They have precisely the right idea, Mother. It writhed again, more noticeably this time. I will admit to being impressed by her resistance to the pain, though this would have been the second time she endured it. I don't care about your predilections, and neither does he. It's not as if they've made you happy anyway. It's different for you. You love Dad. I do, but you can choose who you love. Starting with your choice of social circle. So much for your idea of love. If I had the choice, I wouldn't love at all. Love is just handing someone a piece of yourself that you'll never get back and waiting for them to break it. There's no need to be so dramatic. If it's that bad for you, then do as I ask. I succeeded in yanking my hand out from under hers. It felt damp with the desperate sweat of her palm. Whatever stupid bargain you've made, you can leave me out of it. I'm cashing this, by the way. She raised her arm and shook it. Do you think I would have chosen this? Do you think my mother chose it, or hers? I wanted you, and I would not have chosen this. I was getting my first real commissions when it happened. But when my mother told me I had no choice, I put my hand out and accepted him, you selfish girl. I picked up the letter knife. Do not bring that bracelet anywhere near me. Absolute coward. Just because you accepted it so meekly does not mean you get to pass it on. I'm not frightened of you. You look ridiculous. It's blunt. He's going to take my hand off. I looked down at my own hand, with its calloused middle finger from holding a pen and the blue and yellow acrylic stuck under my nails. I painted in fingerless gloves to counteract the cold of the shed, but my fingertips felt raw against each other from constantly spilling white spirit on myself while mixing. I tried to imagine its absence, the white of a joint poking from the stump. How long would I have between accepting it and it getting that tight? It varies. Probably five years. Your grandmother had seven. You remember the story about great aunt Natasha, Granny's twin? How she was working in a field hospital several miles down the line from Granny when the bomb hit? Granny was your age. And the first thing she knew of her sister's death was when she felt him loop around her wrist that night. She said he was the coldest thing she ever felt. Didn't she marry her sister's fiancé? That strikes me as pretty cold. It was a different time. He sorts your life out, you know. Forces you to plan and stop wasting time on other pursuits. Avoiding Mother's eyes and the stifled condemnation I knew I would see in them, I looked out of the window again. She'd said she would come to the shed when night fell, but I knew she wouldn't. 
The thought of going to her with the snake on disgusted me. I wondered what it did to women who were infertile. I'd always half believed that I was too bitter to bear children, that I pictured my ovaries as necrotic clumps of matter. I'd never been one to forgo any grievances. I spread my fingers out on the dark green leather and turned the knife over in my other hand. So the hilt faced her, and the blade faced me. Fucking do it then. She tried not to look too eager, but the faint lines pulled upwards round her eyes. She tugged at the edge of a moth hole in the hem of her jumper. Are you sure you're ready? Because it will be too late to complain about it when he's on you. I am ready, but I will not be passing it on. Maybe it will give me five years. Even ten. Maybe it'll cut my hand off the minute it feels my intention, but it ends with me. Wait and see how he feels. I folded my lips against each other and said nothing. She took the hilt and started prizing at its jaws. Five years and that amount of money might be enough. I could finish a lot of canvases in five years. If it planned to give me less than that, perhaps I had already known enough beautiful things. I tried to think only of those as Mother retook my hand in hers. The sunlight on the snow this morning, the smell of a newly cut lemon, the windows of the Sainte Chapelle, the place where her hair met the nape of her neck, swimming naked in the even load in spring. I closed my eyes and waited for my bones to splinter. The snake shot across my arm so fast it took me some moments to realise what I'd felt. It was burn cold, death cold, bone cold. Would it always be like this? I looked down to see that it had left an open welt from which tiny bubbles of blood were starting to emerge, first slowly, then quickly. But it was not there. It was not on my other wrist, or on either of my ankles. My mother's wrist was bare as well. Relief broke through the shock, and I looked round to see where it had gone. A flicker of a silver tail disappeared through the floorboards. It was headed downstairs to the twins. Dateless Night was written by Leon Craig and was performed by Molly Beth Morosa and Sarah Tom. The director was Tom Crowley and the story was recorded by Benjamin Partridge at the Tristan Bates Theatre. We were thrilled to receive Dateless Night as an unsolicited submission and thank Leon for getting in touch and letting us use her story. If you have a short story or radio play which you'd like to have featured on our show, please don't hesitate to get in touch at storyetcetrapod at gmail.com. I think speaking to quaint ladies, well, the whole um, discussion about the secrets of birth and the secrets of women's domesticity, it was one of those, I don't want to overstate this, but it was one of those moments where you just kind of can't believe that this thing happened Mm. and that we don't all know this. Mm. And I just, I found myself thinking and thinking and thinking about the fact that so many women would have had these dramatic, 
traumatic things happen to them and just not have it recorded and not Mm. have it written down and it made me angry and it made me want to tell everyone about it and yeah in terms of um discovering something about secrets I think it taught me something about how potent a secret can be if it's shared among that many people um, Mm. but really shared really kept and yeah it was it was it was really astonishing actually it is it's a shame almost isn't it because with that kind of thing and i suppose now we see it more with the um the the stigma of mental health and people are now far more encouraged to to feel that they can discuss or seek help openly without having to feel any sort of shame well i say that it's still an ongoing struggle but that's the discussion that's being had now Mm. but in the case of of uh women in the past having horrible torturous experiences happen to them in the act of childbirth but we can't talk about that yeah it's almost like now that the medical technology is advanced and these practices aren't active anymore it's almost we discovered the secret that was yeah. kept under a blanket too late to, yeah and to move change beyond it, it. And yeah. move beyond it i mean it is amazing how even once you know it's there in digging for it like the processes that great ladies talked about um there's sort of avenues of research and you know when I was looking stuff up myself like it is it is hard to find even when you know exactly what you're going after and yeah it was amazing mm. interesting especially in the, in the modern day when secrets that you still haven't found it has to be that someone really scrubbed it out of existence before we were documenting everything quite so completely mm, yeah as we are now yeah absolutely I quite liked thinking about what is going to become of modern day fiction and what's going to be considered secret in the future, what people are going to be uncovering about us. Like you said, it, when we document everything so much in so many different channels, what's what's left to find out? Yeah, and it's it's when you hear about... Um, I was speaking to someone who teaches high school, actually, and one complaint he had, he teaches at a girls' school, and he was incredibly frustrated because this wasn't his job, mm-hmm. but it was how much the girls at the school document their own lives and put of themselves out there. You hope that the younger generation will will have or will develop a more savvy attitude towards the internet. And I think a lot of kids do, but it's a shame to realise that now that you have the ability to be stupid like a teenager on a more grand scale, they're doing it. <laughs> oh, good. That's all what we all wanted, Oh well, looking back on our teenagers. But there will always be secrets. I hmm. wonder if a lot of the secrets, like you're saying, a lot of the secrets that will sort of transpire as being um, ones that we're making now will be constructed around taboos that we don't even know mm. are there. Like things that we aren't consciously keeping secret, mm-hmm. the things that we're not talking about or that people aren't talking about. Um, so maybe ones to do with, I don't know, current events or um, sort of quotidian aspects of our lives that we just don't talk about, but that we won't know until kind of hundreds of years in the future people are going... Why did they ever talk about that? That's a big thing. What, when we uncover some Russian emails or something like that? I was thinking tax returns, but yeah, that kind of Maybe. thing. Yeah, possibly. Yeah. That's another thing, though, isn't it? Where if it's, uh, if it's been discovered and uh, examined at length, it's not that secret a secret, really. Mm. Thanks, as ever, to all our contributors and the people who added their voices to the conversation. We'd also like to extend special thanks to Benjamin Partridge, our recordist for this month's radio plays. Ben's the mad genius behind the Beef and Dairy Network podcast, which you must check out if you haven't already. Huge thanks also to Matthew Keeler of the Tristan Bates Theatre for letting us record in the space. If you've enjoyed this programme, please do subscribe and tweet about us. You can find us at Story Etc. Pod. And if you'd like to help us out, why not consider giving us a nice review on iTunes, Stitcher or your podcast platform of choice? It makes a huge difference. 
If you're based in or around London, England, you'll also be very excited to hear that we're gearing up for our next Story Etc. live fundraiser on Thursday 25th of May at 7.30pm at the Wenlock and Essex in Angel, London. All money made from the tickets sold will go straight back into this programme. We've been paying for the show out of our own pockets so far, so if you'd like to help keep us off the streets, please do consider popping along for a great lineup of stories and acts and a nice drink with the whole team afterwards. You can find full details of the gig at storyetcetrapod.com forward slash live. We hope to see you there. You can also find full episode notes on our website at storyetcetrapod.com and we hope you'll stay tuned for our next episode. Science. Story Etc. Episode 3, Secret, was produced and presented by Tom Crowley, Jenny Redmond and Eleanor Rushton. The supervising editor was Odin Ornhill Marson, who also composed the music. Our guests this month were Evie Wilde, Daryl Green, Stuart Pringle and Maureen O'Hagan and Sarah Anson of Quaint Ladies. Special thanks to Benjamin Partridge and Matthew Keeler. Story Etc. is a production of Audio Scribble and Crowley & Co. Thanks for listening.